Praise God. Praise God. Grab your seats, everybody, if you would. Uh, he is worthy of all of our praise. Uh, before we dive into the Word of God, I wanted to share with you guys, um, this day last week, um, I don't know if you ever have a, an occasion in your life where you're like, oh, that was important. That was an important moment. And I think in the life of this church, this day last week, last Sunday, um, was an important moment for us. Uh, about 140 people hopped in our cars. We went down to Alma and we went to the YFC building that we're going to be renting. And uh, we had a little tour and a prayer time and a preview of the location where we're going to be launching our first multi-site in January 2020. And it was a phenomenal time. We took groups of people into the different rooms where we're going to have uh, children's church and nursery and the babies and all the way through Bridge 56 and all the different uh, ministries. And we prayed in every single one of those rooms for every kid and child and boy and girl, every volunteer, every servant and info. And we're going to get a cup of coffee and donuts. We've got to get the donuts, right? And when we went to the main auditorium and there was a whole gang of people and they all were sitting up on these risers and the way we have uh, a design laid out for how we're going to do church. In my mind, as I stood there, the hair was on the back of my neck. I just saw this 140 people and I'm like, I just think the Holy Spirit's going to double that and triple that and quadruple that over and over so the city could come to Jesus Christ. And it's not even a bunch of Christians meeting together, but it's a whole bunch of people in Alma and Shepherd and Ithaca who don't know Jesus Christ and have not heard the gospel, have not experienced what you and I have experienced in terms of the love of God in our lives. And I just saw that place packed out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to celebrate that today. So if you would... If you would, please continue to pray. Uh, we are working very, very hard behind the scenes, getting all our ducks lined up so that when January rolls around, we're just going to burst out with the gospel. So please be continuing to pray about that. All right, let's dive into Mark chapter 5. I've been practicing pronouncing this name all week. Let's see if I can get it right. Zlatan Ibramovic. I think I got it right. He is a Swedish professional footballer. Now, by football, I mean football. <laughs> He is a prolific goal scorer, and he's a particularly tall man, particularly for a football player, for a soccer player. He stands at six feet, five inches. He's a big boy, and he's very, very strong, just, just kind of manhandles the other guys. Uh, very fast, very creative player, and at six foot five, he's got an incredible aerial game when he's heading up for the headers. And he has played for the national Swedish team for his entire career. But besides the national Swedish team, he has played in Europe for, his, for the vast majority of his career, play, playing for the creme de la creme of European teams, Ajax and Juventus and Inter Milan and Barcelona and Manchester United, even though Manchester United are rubbish. <laughs> that joke would have gone down even better in Ireland. <laughs> Tail end of his career, last year in 2018, he moved to the United States. And he signed up with a team called LA Galaxy. And what I want to do is, I, I want to show you what he did um, by way of illustration, kind of get this into Mark chapter 5 here. I want to show you what this uh, footballer did. There's no doubt about it, he's a pretty arrogant guy, extremely cocky. When he arrived in Los Angeles, he took out a one-page ad about himself. Take a look at what he put in the LA Galaxy. Now, on the left-hand side, that's the write-up on him. On the right-hand side, which is mostly blank, that's the ad that he personally paid for. And it simply says this, Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome. <laughs> How cocky is this guy? So, but what is he doing? Here I am. And it's going to be incredible. Take a look at what he did in his very first game for LA Galaxy. 
Strong is bonding in. It's going to fall for Ibrahimovic. Oh, Paul! Sensational! Did you think he was going to live up to the billing? Of course he did! Out of this world! Every superlative you want! What a way to announce yourself to Major League Soccer! Amazing! What a way to announce yourself to Major League Soccer! If I preach a really good sermon this morning, I'm thinking of taking off my shirt and running. No, 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 no. <laughs> there goes the church. <laughs> Actually, last, was it two nights ago, one of my boys played soccer for a local team, and it was the end of the season, and so it was like the kids against the parents game, and I got out there, and I was like, I'm such an idiot. I'm like, I'm back. <laughs> I think I'm 18. Every muscle in my body this morning is killing me right now. So I'm going to walk gently as I preach. But what is he doing? What is this guy doing? He is communicating his intent. Here I am, and I'm going to make a difference. Now, placing the cockiness and the arrogance aside, in Mark chapter 5, it's unbelievable what this man of action is going to do. I must be about my Father's will. Scripture must be fulfilled. And we've looked at just four chapters so far. And we have seen a Messiah coming out and making Messiah statements. Nobody, I mean, these are going to get him into trouble. It will be the justification for his execution, and he doesn't care. I have authority even to forgive sins and to show you, get up off your mat and walk. Authority over sickness, Authority over the demonic, authority over sin. Last week in chapter 4, authority over creation. He's talking to wind and waves. And this week, as if that were not enough, he's going to come to us in chapter 5 and he's going to ratchet it up another notch entirely. This is a man on a mission. And he is driven to full scripture, fulfill scripture and to do what his father sent him to do. Now, for Mark, as he's writing this chapter right here, he lives in a culture that has absolutely caricatured the Messiah. They've got this picture in their head of what the Messiah is going to look like. And it is a very strong man on a horse with a sword in his hand. And he, everyone is convinced when he comes, he will demolish Rome. Look at what they have done to us. Look at how they have conquered and suppressed and dominated our culture and our country. And so when the Messiah comes, that's definitely what he's going to do. And this Messiah is going to come and he's, he's going to say, here, watch me give you a correct assessment of what the Messiah is really about. What about our culture? What has our culture done? What is our assessment of the Messiah? Well, here's what I think our culture has done. Despite all the controversy of religion, I think our culture actually likes Jesus. I don't believe he has been demonized. People like him, but they like him for what he's not necessarily what he is. They say, well, he was just a really nice person and he was nice to people. He was loving and he said some nice stuff. And so they elevate Jesus and they place him on a shelf. But here's what our culture does. Our culture then will take a whole plethora of other options and place those things on that top shelf right alongside Jesus and say, hey, you go ahead and take your pick. 
Jesus wants to come to you today and say, no, let me give you a correct assessment. So let's look at chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, this was a desperate man, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. So what is Jesus doing in this moment? It's really clear. He's going to go with Jairus. I'm going to go to Jairus's house. I'm going to help his little girl. She's sick, maybe even dying. Now look what happens. How's this for a distraction? A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowds and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, do you remember what Jesus was going to do? He was going to Jairus' house because there's a little girl who's sick. Maybe she's even dying. But that's not what happened. And so we have an, an incredible delay here. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, this is as bad as news gets, isn't it? Your daughter is dead. Now look at this question. I want to look at two questions here. Here's the first one. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why trouble him? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, here's the second question. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there with the, where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. To give her something to eat. I really like that. There's something very physical about what's happened here. I want you to give her something to eat. She needs to be fed. Jairus has gone from something extremely difficult to something that is impossible. We see a significant interruption. A woman bleeding 
for 12 years gets in the way of what Jairus needs. His daughter is sick and dying. Now, Jesus' compassion heals this bleeding woman. But while she's being cured, his daughter is dying. And this delay proves to be fatal. Sorry, Jairus, we've got some really bad news for you. Your daughter is gone. Your daughter is dead. His faith was sufficient for a dying daughter. Would his faith be sufficient for a dead daughter? Could Jairus trust Jesus with something like that? Let me ask you this. How often do you come to Jesus when the oars have fallen out of the boat and you don't know what to do next and you cry out to God and you say, help me. And God comes and he helps you and he speaks to you and he comforts you and then you got your oars back in the boat and you say, great, I'm gonna put you back on that shelf. How often do we do that? How often do we come before the Father and we atomize our requests before God. God, you can do this for me, but I don't think you can do this for me, and I can take care of this other thing, and nobody can take care of this. And we divide it up, and we splinter these requests with our God. What is Jairus doing here? Is he committed to Jesus when the horrible news comes that his daughter is actually gone? Now look at the two questions in here. Verse 35, why trouble the teacher any further? To me, it makes a lot of sense. She's gone. Why trouble the teacher any further? And then the second question is Jesus' question. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? And to my mind, that doesn't actually make a lot of sense. It makes sense that they would be crying. She's gone. Jesus' friends are asking, what's the point? Jesus is asking, I don't see what the problem here is. What's the problem with the situation? From their perspective, it makes no sense for Jesus to have any further dealings with this. We've seen the crowds. They're thronging about him. Everyone has needs. There's healing and deliverance and words of hope that need to be spoken. Case closed. She's gone. She's dead. We may as well just move on with our lives and begin to plan a funeral. Let's not waste any more time with this Jesus stuff. And to me, it's a fair assumption. If Jesus is nothing more than a wandering prophet... If Jesus is nothing more, maybe than a very wise person. But if he's the incarnate son of God, if he really is the one in chapter four who is able to speak to wind and waves and tell them what to do, if he really is the one in chapter three and two and one who looked at people and healed them and has authority over sin, is it possible, is it possible that he could have authority over death? Nobody has authority over death, right? Death always has the last word. And Mark leaves this question, and I believe he does it on purpose in Mark chapter 4. He leaves it just hanging at the end. They, it says they're standing in amazement because he commanded the wind and the waves, and this is what he leaves it with. Who is this man? And he doesn't answer the question. He just leaves it hanging there. It's the great question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? We put him on the shelf with all kinds of other options. Who is he? Is he a wandering prophet? Or is he Lord and King of the universe? Is he the incarnate Son of God, unique in his incarnation, triumphant in his death, glorious in his resurrection and ascension? Or is he just another guy who's walked onto the stage of human history? Because if he is just another guy, then we can pop him on the shelf and he can sit there right alongside Krishna or Muhammad or Buddha or anyone else that you want to stick up there. The question is, if Jesus is who he claims to be, it is not arrogant to affirm that. 
But if Jesus is not who he claims to be, then it's just a waste of time. And chapter 4 ends this way, and I think he does it deliberately. Who is this man? Later on, and we'll look at this a little bit later on in the summer, he asks the same question. Who do people say that I am? And they're throwing out all kinds of answers. And finally, Peter says, I think you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And he says, Peter, you're exactly right. Now let me tell you what's going to happen next. I'm going to set my face to Jerusalem where I will suffer at the hands of cruel men and I'll be put to death, but I'll rise again in three days. And Peter goes, what? I don't know about that. That's not the picture I had. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I don't think we'd know about Jesus Christ. I don't know that we'd have a gospel of Mark. I don't know that we'd have any of the gospels without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's not a page in this book that is absent from the conviction of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a single page. And that is the very thing that transformed a bunch of men and women who were scared for their lives and disheartened and disappointment and living in despair and turned them into live wires full of boldness who went out in the streets and said the very thing that nobody wanted to hear. You crucified him, but now he's alive again and he can be Lord and friend and savior. Why? Because of the truth of the resurrection. So this passage that we're reading, it's critical. Jesus is foreshadowing something that is about to come. He's flexing a muscle. He's flexing a muscle that nobody else even has. No one else can do this. You want to talk about a man of action. Look at, this, look at the craziness of the situation that Jesus, in the middle of all of this emotion, is able to deal with the situation and still say, and let me, know, let me tell you about my agenda, because I've got something to say. I'm not just responding to what's happening in these throngs of crowds. We have a sick girl who becomes a dead girl because another girl needed to be healed because she was bleeding for 12 years. And Jesus steps into all of that the father, the mother, the crowds, the wailing, the emotion, the desperation, the throngs of crowds, all of that. And he says, I got something to tell you. Jesus is warning them. I'm just warming up to the main event. He's reaching into the life of a dead girl. And what does he do when he touches a dead girl? He's making himself unclean. He'll do it again with his friend Lazarus when he dies when he is literally stinking up the place with death itself. There's another scenario in the New Testament where there's a widow and her little boy is dead and he just says, I'm stopping the funeral procession. Can you imagine going out in the street with all the, the cars and the flags? Stop the funeral procession. I'm going to come in and I'm going to touch death so that now I can transform death. I'm willing to be now be ceremonially unclean. And they're asking the question, what's the point in talking to Jesus? What's the point in, in bothering the teacher? Surely when you're dead, you're dead. First question may be understandable. She's dead, why bother the teacher anymore? Second question doesn't make as much sense. Why all the commotion? Why are you crying? Why all of this wailing? Well, it's the most normal thing in the world, isn't it? News has gotten out and a crowd of people have come to the house because they heard that a little girl has died and the community is doing what the community should be doing. They're going there to care for the family. In this culture, and it probably is a little hard for us to 
relate to something like this, they literally would have had professional mourners. You can read this beyond the book of the, uh, of the Bible. You can look at this just simply in history. Even a poor man would hire a professional mourner. And here there was at least one professional mourner, probably more, and two flute players. And it seems a bit odd for us. What they're literally doing was creating an environment whereby those who, who were marked by this loss were able to speak out and, and verbalize and communicate their grief and their emotions. All of these people are there for obvious reasons. She's gone. The crowd has gathered the professional mourners are there to fulfill their duties. And Jesus walks on the scene and he asks this crazy, odd question. Why are you crying? Why all this noise? Why the commotion? Why are you wailing? Why are you clapping your hands and playing these flutes? It doesn't make any sense. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they start laughing at him. We know she's dead. We've been here. You just got here. We've seen her. You haven't seen her. When you see her, you'll know what we already know to be true. What are you saying that she's sleeping? Is that a sick joke, Jesus? That's not funny. She's gone. What is Jesus doing here? He's not denying the fact that the girl is dead. He's simply reversing the verdict of death. <laughs> I'm going to say that again because you don't get to say those kinds of phrases too often in life. He's not denying the fact that she's dead. He's just coming in there to change the verdict of death. Amen? That's huge. As if to raise her up from sleep. Sleep is used as a metaphor in the New Testament again and again. John 11, his friend Lazarus, he says he's fallen asleep. I'm going to go in and wake him up. <laughs> That's incredible. 1 Thessalonians 4, talking about our loved ones. It says, uh, we do not sorrow in relationship to those who have just fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the end times, the return of Jesus Christ. I'll show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And Christ, because he is who he is, he doesn't fit on a shelf with a plethora of other options. He's able to look death in the face and say, you don't need to cry. There's no need for this wailing. She's not dead. She's just asleep. John 11 from the message, the paraphrase, he says, you don't have to wait till the end. I am right now. I am resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? What is Jesus challenging Jairus to do? Jairus, I want you to replace your fear of death with faith in God. Ever had your faith tested? Anyone like that? No, not really. This is a massive test of faith for Jairus with his little girl. Jairus, I got two things to say to you. Don't be afraid. I just want you to believe in me. And the tense for that when he says, I want you to believe, is actually the present continuous. What's that old song from the 80s, Don't Stop Believing? That's what he's saying to Jairus. Look, you came to me and you were desperate and you were vulnerable and you trusted me and you believed in me. Now don't stop doing that. Now's not the time to stop doing that. Now's the time when you really need to lead into me and you need to keep doing what you've been doing. Keep it up. You came to me when things were terrible and your daughter was so sick. Now is the time to keep on believing. Now is the time to lean on me. And this is massive faith for Jairus. 
It's not just words. You ever said that you believe something, but you said it in a plastic way that was empty? It's not just a creed or some little statement that you're reading from a page. This is genuine faith, indivisible, resting upon, trusting in. It is a disposition of the mind and the heart that takes God at its word, at his word, when everything in your life, in fact, when the, the things that are most important to you in your life seem to be crumbling in front of your feet. That's when faith actually begins to count. He's inviting Jairus to take a step towards him as the Christ. We mentioned Lazarus earlier, and there's another friend. Her name is Martha. She practically barks at Jesus. Where were you? We told you. You had plenty of time to come here. Why didn't you come earlier? He's gone. He's dead. I mean, it's emotional and it's raw and it's real. And she's barking at Jesus. Why didn't you come? And then she says this, but even now, I think you can fix this. Incredible faith. The parallel between these two passages is incredibly clear. Lazarus was sick. Can you come and help him? My little girl is sick. Can you come and help her? Jesus is delayed with Lazarus. Jesus is distracted with a little girl. And both cases, their sickness, both comes, turns to death. Jesus, he might be able to fix sickness. We've seen him fix sickness, but can he fix death? Don't bother the teacher. Forget about it. Well, don't listen to that. Let me tell you what to do. Don't be afraid and believe. This is the mission of the Messiah. He is foreshadowing his own death. He's going to show what he does with death. He's the only one who looks death in the eye and says, I can win the day. And Jairus is confronted with the same question that confronts every single one of us. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Will Jairus allow the worsening of his life and his circumstances to undo his faith? Or will his faith be the bedrock foundation upon which he faces his life and his circumstances. That's the choice we have every day. All of your life will require a counterbalance between fear and faith. Faith and fear. You will have this opportunity this week, maybe even today. Is it going to be fear when it's crumbling? I think it's going to embrace fear. Or, man, it's crumbling in front of me. I'm going to embrace faith. Romans chapter 4 paraphrase from a guy called J.D. Phillips. He's talking about a guy in the Old Testament called Abraham. God gave him this incredible promise. Abraham, you're going to have kids, and then they're going to have kids. It's going to turn into a massive country. It's going to be a huge number of people, and things are not looking so good. Romans 4, Abraham, when hope was dead within him. Ever been there? When hope was dead within him, he went on hoping in faith, believing that he would become, and this is God's phrase, the father of many nations. He relied on the word of God, which definitely referred to your descendants. With undaunted fate, he looks at the facts. Number one, his own impotence. He was practically 100 years old at the time. And his wife's, number two, his, his wife Sarah's apparent barrenness. That is not a good equation for having babies. Yet he refused to allow any distrust of definite pronouncement of God to make him waver. He drew strength from his faith. And while giving glory to God... He remained absolutely convinced that God was able to implement his own promise. This was the faith which was accounted to him for righteousness. Now that is genuine faith. 
And now we have this little group, mom and dad, Jesus, James, Peter, and John. And he throws out the wailers and he throws out those who are weeping and he throws out the laughers and he goes into where the child was. And now listen to these words. Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It's Aramaic. And here's what I love about it. It's the most normal little phrase in the world. They're the exact words of Jesus. And it's so common and regular and ordinary. It's the exact kind of little phrase that a mom or dad would go in in the morning to their little boy or their little girl and say, hey there, little lamb, come on, it's time to get up. That's what it is. I love it. It's really precious and it's really beautiful. There's something tender. Come on, little, come on, little boy. It's time for you to get up now. Little girl, it's the kind of phrase that a parent would speak to their child just like that. It's a beautiful scene. He's talking to a lifeless, pale, pulseless. He's taking the hand of a little girl tenderly and he's saying, come on, it's time to get up now. What I love about this is it shows the power of the Messiah because there's no sound or fury or bluster or noise. He doesn't even repeat himself. There's no incantation. He's not reciting something. He's not shouting anything. It is the most ordinary, normal little word towards her lifeless body. And the scripture says immediately she just gets up. Mark has already shown us the Messiah that he has come as a man of action. The Messiah who has come with authority over sickness and the demonic, authority even to forgive sins, authority over creation, as if that were not enough, the Messiah in chapter five is letting us know and showing us a glimpse of his ultimate end game. He's doing something that nobody else can do. He is triumphing over death itself. Hey, LA Galaxy, I'm here. Hey, planet Earth, I'm here. And I'm going to do something that nobody else can do. Watch what I'm about to do. He is foreshadowing what is to come. This is exactly what he wants to make known. The Messiah is here. My willingness, my Father's mission to come and tackle death. What did Cain do to Abel? Death. He killed him. The flood almost killed everybody. Moses was a great guy, but he's dead. Abraham, we just read about him. Incredible faith, but he's dead. The monastic, the golden era of the monastic age, Saul, David, Solomon, wonderful. They're gone. The prophets come and they speak powerfully and they bring God's voice to direct nations. Guess what? They're gone. Death does what death always does. And we hate it. It's so difficult and it's touched and marked every one of our lives. And Jesus says, no, I want you to pay attention to what I'm able to do to death because a day is coming. Watch out for it. It's called Friday. 
And when Friday comes, death will attempt to get its two hands and to put it around my throat. And then I'll endure Saturday for you. And death will attempt to strangle me and to put them down. But here's what you need to know. Sunday is coming. And when Sunday's coming, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the sting out of death. And one day, every one of us in this place today, you will encounter death. And watch what he does. This invitation to this 12-year-old little girl. He says, when she gets up immediately, he says, give her something to eat. And one day you will face death and that day will come. And if you follow Jesus Christ, what'll happen is instantly you will find yourself seated at a banquet table and there will be the king himself. He'll be in attendance and he will serve you. What a supper that will be. You'll be reunited with your loved ones who followed Christ. What a party that will be. Church, Mark 5 is simply this. Let me show you the true nature of the Messiah. I am Jesus Christ, and I have come to defeat death.